And welcome to yet another Pro Video Coalition podcast, which will be the last one for this fabulous year of 2020. And I invited back a couple of uh, old friends that we've talked to a lot this year as we all went through 2020, because they are two of the smartest folks I know when it comes to this uh, post-production and production in the media world in general. I want to say a hearty hello uh, to Mr. Gary Adcock. Gary, how are you doing? Good, sir. How are you all doing? Thank you for joining us once again. And also, Mr. Michael Thomas, who's on the West Coast. And Gary is, of course, up in Chicago, Illinois. Michael, how is the West Coast? Oh, it's beautiful uh, from what I can see from the window because we're not supposed to leave our houses. That's but right. It looks nice outside. You're in high quarantine. First of all, yeah, I think uh, the the, the perf- perfect way to start a 2020 discussion of kind of the year that has passed is just to go into pandemic COVID things right off the bat because um, I think like uh, Tennessee is having a lot of problems right now as we, as we record this. Big infection rates. Um, we're one of the worst spots in the country. And uh, I think... It's just how have how has our industry, first of all, do you guys think the industry in itself has dealt with the pandemic this year? I'll let you jump into that one first, Gary, because being in the heart of Chicago, you probably are in and around lots of this stuff. Um, yeah, uh, it's been a disaster everywhere, I think. You know, it's, let's be honest, there, you know, a good chunk of the industry went five, six months without working at least. Um, some of us have gone longer or are spotty in there. I, I know Michael has a different perspective being being a post guy in the West Coast. But but yeah, until probably September, everything here in Chicago was, was pretty much shut down. They started doing some things. There's been some lapses of protocols. I know Chicago Fire, the shoots here, had to shut down for two weeks because of COVID and the crews. But all in all, once everybody got situated and started handling the pandemic properly with masks and protocols and, you know, hand washing and everything. Um, It's been pretty effective for the most part here. And from what I've heard in L.A., there's only been a few productions I know that have shut down. Um, What's your take on that, Michael? Well, as you pointed out, I'm primarily post, but what we saw was uh, just a domino effect. Obviously, you know, that Thursday when everyone was sent home, um, there was still enough in the can for post to keep going uh, for a bit longer. But it was post not being able to get into the same room and get access to things and edit and create the way they've normally done. And then when that was uh, patched, piecemeal patched, uh, everyone saw the writing on the wall that there's going to come a point in time where we don't have enough already shot that uh, that we can continue to work. So it was it was kind of a slow torture um, to, to see when that was going to happen. Uh, and of course, you know, a, a lot of productions or uh, a lot of productions have found um, bubble t- uh, bubble or uh, uh, bumper stickers and bubble gum to kind of hold posts together to keep things going. But uh, it's been a, a massive toss up. And uh, just so many people have lost their jobs, uh, not to mention, you know, loved ones uh, that it's it's really been a nightmare. I'm shocked you didn't say they used gaffers tape. You said uh, bubble gum and, and something else. But uh, anyway, so unions, unions use gas tape. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. If we were going to grade kind of the industry as a whole on on how it reacted to covid. And I think it's a, this is an interesting question because this was an unexpected thing. It's something that we've never faced before. Everybody was making it up as they go along. But 
Gary, what what grade would you give to our industry in itself for how they um, handled the the shock of the system when all this went down and how they have adapted to get us to where we are at the end of 2020? We're, well, using the we F, we're using the F minus to the A plus scale. Well, considering that we're just a few days after Tom Cruise's tirade got released and, and you know, there, and it's funny, film Twitter was like, yeah, it's kind of a normal thing on a set. And the rest of the people were all offended about it. You know, <laughs> the reality of it is, I think, for the most part, if you were working in a small enough production to be mainstream, um, you know, you you kept the protocols in, you stayed pretty safe. Um uh, I think for the most part, our industry's probably done, um, you know, C plus B minus kind of work. Uh, you know, there's 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 things about it that are still wrong. Um, I'm lucky enough to have done stuff with NFL films and been associated with some of the people who were in the bubble at the, for the NBA. You know, the NBA put a bubble around mm-hmm. all their crews and everything and hired the guys for seven days a week for the I wonder, it was 200 plus days that they were there. Um, you know, that turned out pretty interesting because they were tested every day. I for NFL films get tested every week for games. So it's like some of us have been tested enough to actually be safe, feel safer about, you know, just life in general. But that's not the norm. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, hell, I know medical professionals that haven't gotten a COVID test because they don't want to know if they've gotten it or not. And that's actually kind of scary to me when the film community and the people who are doing this are going through, you know, rapid testing and multiple tests on a regular basis to try and maintain some kind of semblance of normalcy. The, you know, the, you you got medical professionals that can't get tests because they can't afford to or their organizations won't let them have it. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But I give it, you know, C plus B minus overall. OK, Michael, what about you? What do you think? Letter grades? Uh I would, uh, and you know, this the podcast is going to be boring as hell if Gary and I agree on, on everything. But um, I, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm about in that same boat. But there are so many angles to this. If we look at uh, production, obviously the union came out and rolled out procedures and guidelines, um, and then you have idiots like on the on the uh, Mission Impossible set who violate that, which I think Cruz was in the right. We can discuss that later. Uh, but you know, the, the realm I normally play in is post production. Um, the issue we run in that we ran into is that there is no room for error, mostly in post. Things are are optimized, and I use that term loosely. Uh, that there isn't downtime, there isn't time to fix errors, there isn't time to course correct. And when the pandemic hit and everyone was sent home on a Thursday, there wasn't time to orchestrate new workflows. There wasn't time to test other things. And because the post schedules are so compressed. It just, uh, you know, poured gasoline on the fire. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of post-production, I shouldn't say I think, most post-production uh, entities, whether it be studios or independent productions, um, bootstrapped it, right? They were doing remote desktops. They were shuttling drives and having one person go into the office and then, you know, take drives to people. Yep. Uh, and, and that was kind of the easiest, least expensive thing to do and something that you could do automatically, right? You could do something quickly. Um, and I think what what was very interesting is, and I mean no disrespect to my uh, uh, my editing friends, uh, you know, editors traditionally have a lot of tools at their, their disposal, right? Multiple monitors, a video monitor, surround sound in some places, uh, just really nice equipment. And we found out really quick what you actually needed versus wanted when you're editing <laughs> remotely, because yeah. folks are sitting at home on a five-year-old laptop 
wireless while their partner is on a Zoom call and their kids are getting, uh, uh, you know, having a Zoom conference to learn uh, about the alphabet. So we we really found what was what was needed versus what was wanted. Uh, and I think we're still kind of figuring that out uh, as the pandemic rolls on and just how much can you stomach with the bare minimum? Yeah, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think that's why if I was given a letter grade, I would all actually maybe give it an A, I think, because we were thrown into the unknown so quickly and we were able to adapt and still get still get work done. Now, there certainly are production i think about you know as a post guy as an editor um i think about the production people who had to just stop and could not work because there's no work to do post-production people got to keep rolling a little bit they got to finish what was already in the can they got to go back and do a lot of repurposing as the year wore on we got you know in my my world i live in a lot of corporate stuff i did a lot of um uh, online virtual corporate meetings that would have been in person otherwise, uh, but they did it all virtually. So there was a lot of this, you know, it wasn't fun stuff, but it was stuff that kept going. And you're right. We did shuttle drives. We did work on some, uh, some remote uh, software options we never would have done before, but the adaptability seemed to be uh, pretty good. And most people adapted without a ton of complaining beyond the fact that, you know, the complaining is pretty much the pandemic sucks. This sucks. But, you know, thank God, I, you know, we still have some work to do and we can and we can keep going. So, I, you well, know, all things considered, it could have been worse. There is, um, there is it could be worse. Yeah. It could have been worse, but think about how how the one thing that didn't fail the most of the time was the Internet. I mean, most of us, while we had slow connections or anything, the load on the Internet quadrupled in this period of time. And it was like, you know, all of a sudden it was, you know, the Super Bowl of television and everybody's online at the same time. And the Internet didn't just shut down and crash on us. That's a that's a major feat on itself, too. Beyond your local like I've had our local neighborhood Comcast node would go down occasionally. But I, I think in, in the big picture, I think you're right, because it was so much was was uh, was loaded, loaded onto it, it you know, in almost overnight. And that is a that's a really, really good point to um, to, to to bring up because it's 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 such a it's such a given now. It's it, we take it for granted so much. That it's just going to work that when it doesn't work, it is like the end of the world. I, I would like to be somewhat negative for a moment and uh, uh, we've had enough of that in tw- did you know there was a presidential election this year let me tell you about this you want to talk about negative in 2020 there was and and this will make sense uh once i get once i get through it um as you know uh, scott and gary um i've had a very long relationship uh with, with avid um both as a user and then of course through the various uh, uh career paths i've been on and and as you probably know, a majority of the content that you see uh, on the silver screen uh, and that you see on the on the boob tube is primarily generated from Avid. And uh, when the pandemic hit, um, Avid was about to release uh, a new product called uh, Edit on Demand, right, which allows you to edit in the cloud. And uh, it had been in beta for a bit. And when the uh, industry came to a screeching halt, because everything, for the most part, was Avid-based, um, Avid had a real opportunity to capture more hearts and minds, had a really good opportunity to uh, help the industry that's keeping Avid going right now. And, um, yeah, they may have extended you know, your, uh, your support a little bit longer or waived a couple monthly fees, but their new product 
they didn't push hard. They didn't drop the price. They kept it at a pretty astounding rate. And it caused a lot of productions, uh, even the studios, to say, how can we not only handle all the additional costs, but now we have to pay several thousand dollars per editor just to use Media Composer? And so it really, I think, caused a lot of um, sourness and bitterness that once again, Avid was doing something that wasn't, um, uh, I don't want to say as endearing, but wasn't uh, uh, as good for the industry as it could have been. And Charging I think, for firewire ports. <laughs> <laughs> Charging and, and, to use a firewire port. That was not good for the industry. <laughs> and what it, what it also caused is that as the... Uh, as we're no longer developing for three television stations, right, and just the studios, now that we're, de- now that we're de- uh, developing content for hundreds and thousands of outlets, more people are media creators and more people are using more tools than just Avid. So we've seen, you know, market share decrease outside the kind of Hollyweird bubble. And this pandemic didn't help at all. And I've seen more and more people and more and more companies to say this was the nail in the coffin. We can no longer continue to pay into this ecosystem. We can no longer uh, continue to work like this when uh, there's nothing really being done to help. So um, I think it was just unfortunately a a bad move. And uh, I'm hopeful that Avid can uh, uh, recover from that. But that sticks in my mind when you ask how the industry responded on a a scale of A to F. that's what really brings it down because the kind of heart and soul of the creative post-production process um, didn't help the industry at all. Yeah, that's interesting. I did. I did not uh, know know that specifically, but I, I do know that I think many of us noticed that when this pandemic hit, you would see companies, you know, do things like they would extend like, OK, you know, instead of a three month trial, it's a six month trial or or this is like an extra thing you have to pay for. We're just going to let you add that into your, your currently monthly payment. And, and to be fair, and, uh, they did that. They, they did that a little bit. I'm not saying they were, you know, uh, they were uh, red and had horns. No, they, they did that to some extent. But it still was, well, if you really want to do this right, you're going to buy Media Central, right, which is just, you know, $100,000, uh, you know, fully deployed. Or, uh, you know, you're going to use this kind of RGS hack solution from HP, right? The the, the, the solutions that would uh, immediately solve things and could be spun up relatively quickly, there wasn't that push and there wasn't that discounted rate to try and say, hey, we understand Here's what we're going to do. And that's uh, disappointing to me. Agreed. But then you look at what some of the other companies have done, you know, Zoom releasing extended times for holidays and and how a lot of the infrastructure is done, how, how a lot of companies you know jumped in and started really starting assisting their employees to be work from home and how we've all learned to become accustomed working this way. I mean, a lot of us work this way naturally. And and this is the interesting part of, of what COVID's been for a lot of it. I mean, a bunch of us are used to working remotely and we're used to working, you know, apart from everything else, especially here in Chicago. I have a lot of contact with people in the West Coast and East Coast and, and, and you know, in Europe, um, but I don't do a lot here. So my stuff's always been virtual and, and, and this just extended all of that. I just wasn't flying anywhere to, to do any of that, which has been the biggest heartache for me. Somebody like me who flies, you know, 
80, 90,000 miles a year on average. I haven't been on an airplane for over a year now. So it's very, very odd in that aspect of the industry. Well, yeah, you know, the, the travel thing is an interesting one because a lot of people in this business do do uh, a ton of, I said do do, do do a ton of traveling. Tra- I'm, I'm like a third grader. They do a lot of traveling and the pandemic just totally shut that off. And it's not just, okay, I don't have to travel to a trade show or I, or I don't have to do whatever this thing is that I'm that I am doing. But it had to be a big mental shift for you because you know if you love traveling you you love it and you're and you're fine doing what it takes to travel but to suddenly have to stop that i mean gary how did you how did you keep your 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 sanity if that was so much a part of your life for so many years uh, you 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 end up like getting doing same rituals that you did in hotel rooms you got up at the same time you did the same kinds of things um i mean i would separate myself from my wash your underwear in the sink uh well no i never do that so i i i I fly long enough to carry enough that i don't have to but but it but the things i would do was like go separate myself from my wife in the summertime i'd go work on the roof or do something else where i was separated from somebody else and it made me act differently, be differently. I mean, you get into rituals when you travel and, and you guys know this, you, you, have, you have a set routine that you use and we all do. And, and it was the hardest thing to get away from was, was just the, the notion. And the other thing I missed when I did it was all the, all the exercise I got traveling. I, then I had to replicate that somehow. If you're walking through airports, I mean, you know, an airport's a mile across in oh, some yeah. instances, at least mine is, um, you know, you, you, I got a lot of exercise walking through airports that I then had to replicate at home. And I didn't ever think about those kinds of things. The, the little things I, I actually have lost weight in all of this. I'm down almost 20 pounds uh, through all of COVID because I haven't been eating out. I haven't been drinking with friends. So there are advantages if you looked at them. <laughs> I think people either, it felt like people either kind of ballooned up during COVID or they, or they lost weight. It, 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 didn't, it seems like most people didn't really stay the same, which is a really strange, um, strange thing. You know, talking about uh, COVID, I, I think, you know, bringing up, the, we have to talk about you know, remote, you know, I'm using air quotes here, remote in general during this, because so many things did go remote. Uh, do we think that, I mean, I don't want to ask the same question say, was remote editing or remote post-production or remote production successful? But I don't know. What do you guys think, Michael? How how did, you know, when you use the term remote overall, how we all went remote? Let's see how many times I can say remote. How did that end up? Here we are at the end of the year. Were we able to, where could we have done better and what did we do well? What you need is more time. And that's something that pandemic or not, post never gets. And uh, unfortunately, even through the pandemic, rolling out these new workflows where you are working remote, whether it's sneaker netting drives or whether it's remoting into a system somewhere or whether it's uh, working in the cloud completely, there hasn't there still has not been enough time to test new things. And editors uh, and post teams in general are just being thrown in the deep end and saying, you still have Mm -hmm. dates you have to hit. Um, Make it happen. I don't care how. And I think that's been unfortunate because you're looking to completely change how people are working. And just like when you do a camera, just like uh, before you start a production, you have a camera test, there should be a post test, 
right? And that should be, uh, and that should be not only. For, I know. I'm mean, laughing, but it's true. Some it's, of us actually do these things. And now, I'm laughing because studio, no one ever does a post test. Yeah, it's a what a fantastic idea, but boy, it seems like a luxury. Now, the studios will will do it, and feature films will do it, but and sometimes higher budget television shows. But the amount of of folks that I've encountered over the past nine months that said. Yeah, uh, we have uh, three editors starting Monday for a new show. Um, how do we edit remote? I mean, that's the kind of timetables you're looking at. And that's so I, I guess the, the end game to that is we've limped along. There are some companies that have been forward thinking uh, and they've said um, like one company I love to uh, uh, use an example of is Vox. Right. Vox out of New York. Vox cuts uh, content for all sorts of end clients. Right. Whether it be Hulu or, or the now defunct Quibi. Right. And they knew that those projects were going to drop in a month. And so they proactively said, how can we enable people to edit remotely and be safe? And let's do a test first. And uh, the, the way they've been able to roll things out has been nothing short of phenomenal. I think they're kind of the poster child for how things should be done. Um, but uh, back to the original point, uh, I think the industry as a whole has limped along because I still think there's a good percentage of the industry that thinks we're going to go back to how things were and we don't want to invest in new technology. We don't want to mm. look for alternatives because this is just a speed bump and pretty soon we'll be back uh, to how things were. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to the future in a minute. Um, but but so what what do we what did we do right? What did we do well? Does sound like lots of stuff was done badly. What did we do right? Options. There were options. There were yeah. uh, there were different screen sharing protocols. There were uh, different ways of shuttling drives and organizing footage. Uh, there were a number of ways to tackle things. So uh, and that led to a lot of innovation, right? Zoom released a ton of new features. Uh, I know the company I work for released just a ton of features in response to this. So it led to a lot of innovation. We saw new technologies like Evercast. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw new technologies for uh, what we like to call uh, uh, co-creation and collaboration, collaboration that may have happened or that used to happen when everyone's under the same building or via a spotting session. We're now seeing that with people all around the t all around town, all around the country. So we saw technological innovation. But uh, I still think that there that a lot of what was done was kind of done uh, bootstrapped. Gary, what about on the on the that we're talking about a post well, see, and, and the, you know post the production sites? Yeah, it's it's very different because there was transition and it started to to transition. You know, Teradek had brought out tools and other companies, Hollyland had brought out tools that allow you know iOS viewing, so you could actually view you know on your iPad and things like that. So that instantly caught on because then you could remote video video villages and not have people all crowding around a monitor on set. But one of the big things for me that's happened in all of this is the rush to virtual production, hmm. um, i.e. the Mandalorian. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that I've seen in all this, that, that people are, are quickly going to this ability because they can't travel as much because the, of the restrictions of crew sizes and, and you know, uh, crowd sizes for, you know, extras and things like that, that I have seen a huge rush towards the LED wall style of production thing. I mean, I've probably worked on 10 projects since the first of the year related to nothing other than this, this engaging cinematography in with the virtual world that's created with Unreal Engine, uh, Unity, or Omniverse, the new, new NVIDIA tools. And this is kind of amazing to me that, that, that you know, in, in the midst of all of this, 
they've seen this virtual production where an actor's on a virtual set and there's fewer people on set and few, large, smaller crews in, in the same environments has really changed that outlook for the future. But in the reality of it is, is that COVID has kept that from accelerating as fast as it needs to because we're all still re- crew restricted. I mean, it's still hard to do it. And, and that's been an interesting sidebar for me is the two aspects of, you know, the technology that was already out there for onset viewing and preview of, of, of live stream of video that separated out Video Village that allowed, the, you know, the sound guys and the maker and makeup, everybody to see the same signal as the DIT and the director did that that, you know, accelerated quite a bit. But it was really this jump of production when everything shut down. Everybody said, well, if I have virtual walls and I can shoot. You know, if I could shoot plates of different locations, I can put people in front of that and we can get location style shots without having to go anywhere. And, and that's been a really big um, effort. Let me let me ask now, you a question. Side, well, let me ask a question ahead. on the virtual walls for a second. Uh, and I got, two, I got two questions in general about the, the, the production side of things. But this is about the virtual walls um, that, you know, when the Mandalorian did it, it was a huge thing. And I still haven't seen the Mandalorian because I don't have Disney Plus. Um, but that was a big thing. And I think to myself, what, how it's different than green screen? Yes. But is it cheaper to do that than do green screen? Like, why is it such a big deal? Because it feels like, oh, well, you could just do that with green screen anyway. It's kind of the it's not it's not necessarily cheaper, but you get things out of it. Um, it's not cheaper because the walls are expensive yeah, and the be. time and, the, and 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 I mean, if you're doing something like the Mandalorian, which has, you know, I think has three or six individual servers that are all networked together to be able to have the screens match and have them refresh. I mean, you get a really big wall, it starts to get 8, 10, 12K in size. Mm -hmm. You can't have a single computer generating that kind of footage. You have to break it into pieces. So there's technology for the screen companies use that allow the server to spread out. So you're using a section, each section of the wall is 4K and they're all tied together for simultaneous viewing is how they do it. it, while it doesn't make it cheaper, think about the effect of having lesser crew and no travel. Um, you know, there, there are cost benefits as long as you look at the cost uh, expense of doing it. Because in a virtual production like they do on Mandalorian, it's more like an animated project. So you have to be hmm, when okay. you get to the camera point, you have to be pretty much done with the backgrounds of the production and everything else to have them married um, or it doesn't work that way. One of the big advantages of this technology is not just that you can have a background. It's the reflections and the ambience that those curved you know, environments or the reflected environments actually impart back on the set. That's the real advantage of this. And, it, you know, when you think about cars or commercials or things like that, you know, uh, uh, process trailer shots where you're doing somebody driving in a car, that becomes much more realistic if you've got live LED screens. I mean, you go back to Gravity, which is 2013, 2015, mm-hmm. where, you know, they were using LED screens both for the background and for the lighting aspects of it. And it kind of changed the whole world. And that's only five years ago. And, and that's why this LED technology has rapidly replaced things. And, and the other part was is that because all of the LED walls were not being used on rock shows and, and concerts, they had the capability of using them in production facilities. So it's been real interesting to see that because the live event shut down, it actually has kind of accelerated this whole movement towards virtual production because the displays became available in places they didn't normally have them. 
Uh, and that's, that's been another sidebar to all of it. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point to bring out. And, and I, I, I think about the how much how expensive those walls must be. But I, I think they're I, I want to say they're affordable enough. That I know there's a studio here in Nashville that has installed one, and I, I think they're starting to try to you know try to try to sell it as as a viable option. And I never thought you know what they do to the Mandalorian could ever be shoehorned into a you know a studio in the market the size of Nashville. But I guess oh no, that's I, the optimal I, place for it. I mean, one of the things that I've been working on is, is you know, it's a 12-hour sunrise for McDonald's breakfast shows. So you don't have to worry about the related light and everything else. And you can keep projecting in the background and have, you know, the restaurants the same and everything else. And you don't get the restrictions of hat working in a live space. You go in and shoot in a restaurant and then projection on the wall. And then you have a restaurant without the issues of sound or actors uh, or anything yeah. else not being anywhere. And, and I mean... I worked on a project recently that was that was a virtualization of O'Hare Airport. And that was pretty interesting because, you know, you could do reverses and things. You know, you do do the Spain shot, you do the over the shoulder, you do the B-roll. And relatively quickly, when you're doing that kind of stuff, we banged out three or five shots in less than an hour to, to produce a couple of minutes of footage that would have taken days in the airport. Or not did days, you, but but certainly an, a, an entire day in the airport mm-hmm. to get three or four shots. Did you virtually lose your luggage too? Uh, <laughs> I'd why I travel with carry on, Michael. <laughs> you always have it with you. So, so I think we, we can see that this pandemic has accelerated a lot of things. It definitely accelerated the, uh, the, the, the remote work at home thing. It accelerated these technologies we've been talking about. Anything else we can think of that has been that the, that the pandemic has has pushed it into the mainstream lot sooner than we ever thought it, it, it would be cloud adoption yeah without cloud, cloud adoption. the cloud yeah. the cloud uh, and, and what and and i know that the cloud is such a no pun intended nebulous kind of term because it means something different to everyone but the fact that you no longer have to work with just one computer, the fact that that one computer uh, is sitting in an office and that's the only way you can access it, the fact that there is almost an infinite amount of storage and an infinite amount of horsepower in the cloud to do your bidding uh, is is something that's caught, I just don't want to say caught on, but uh, is you being used uh, exponentially more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, completely. Uh, people traditionally have used the cloud as a uh, storage pool. How do I get content to somebody via WeTransfer or VNS3 bucket? It's always been just a transfer medium. And uh, what we're seeing now is people realize that the cloud can be used for creative purposes. You can render, you can use a machine like it's sitting next to you. And so a lot of the uh, naysayers, a lot of the folks who said, ah, bah humbug, you know, that, that'll that never take off. It, it reminds me a lot of the, uh, uh, I'm not going to learn how to edit digitally because I'm just going to edit on with celluloid. It feels a <laughs> lot like uh, yeah. that. There's all, I, always holdouts on everything. It, it, oh, yeah. it is. It is. And I and I think there's a lot of myths like the cloud isn't secure. No, the cloud is secure. Your employees who use welcome one, two, three as a password. That's the problem. It's not <laughs> the cloud. It's the user. Um, but it's so cloud adoption, I think, is just uh, has taken off exponentially uh, during COVID. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that one. And, and, and the other thing is, is I think it, that it's that it's really driven home stuff that things like Michael and I have talked about for years about being resourceful and being associated with more than just a local group and trying to think about how you can, you know, work in a way that accelerates everybody's workflow at the same speed. 
And that's been an interesting thing about all of this is I really think this whole COVID thing has made everybody rethink. The other thing it did is that it it reminded you who your friends were and you forgot who they weren't because you weren't seeing the same people all the time. Hmm. And and it was I got to the point where I would actually um, if somebody texted me, I picked up the phone and called them. I, I, I didn't hesitate. It's like if you if you've got time to text me, I, you could talk to me on the phone. And I got used to doing other things like that. Um, but then we've all got Zoom burnout. I mean, let's be real honest. It's I mean, uh, how yeah. many hours do you really think people can set on a Zoom call? And I've watched I've watched corporate calls that do four or six hours without a break. That's it's insane. like who in the hell can set that long? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know here here we go. Think about the children who are doing this in school every day like that, and I sometimes I'm shocked that um, kids can do it as well as they as well as well as they can. I mean, it's yeah. uh, um, well, you I, know, I, talk about the, cor- the corporate stuff for a second because I think the corporations that kind of leaned into it and try and did something beyond just here's a zoom call for four to six hours. Like they tried to make it fun. They tried to break it up with games. They tried to, you know, do anything to help their employees not feel like they're staring at the screen for four hours. Those ones need to be commended because I think that that did help people get through the fatigue, but there are a lot of companies that, that did not, they literally asked you to stare at your screen for three or four or five, six hours. And with the occasional pee break. Yeah. And, and maybe not even that. You'd have to steal it or, you know, yeah. find some other reason. I, I, I found that kind of ridiculous in a lot of situations because it seems like they didn't seem to care for anybody. But on the flip side, you know, a lot of the virtual conferences, I, I mean, I, I did in a I did, you know, both NAB in May when they did the online version. And then in November, I did the PBW and uh, as part of the fall thing. And and one of the interesting things that came out of that were were Zoom cocktail parties and those kinds of things It actually brought fun back to it. Yeah. And it was like, you know, you sit around and have a drink. And that actually became a very enjoyable part of some of the online information that came out. Um, it was it was difficult because people didn't think about that. And and, you know, and, and then you got to interact with people that, you know, and remember and I make new friends. I made a couple of new friends in Italy when one of the conferences of people I didn't know that were up in Milan. And it was like it was a guy teaching filmmaking to, you know, basically early, you know, high school people, eight, seven, eight, ninth grade. Um, and it was really fun to work with him. And I actually reached out to him afterwards in a Zoom call with him and his class because it was just one of those things that here's a bunch of young kids working with somebody that wants to learn filmmaking in the middle of all of this. And it was actually a lot of fun. And, and that's been one of the things that I think has been real interesting. All of this is how the social mechanisms have changed a little bit. And we've all become a little bit more conscious of, of sharing our, our knowledge and our skills with people who don't necessarily have as much as we do. Well, do you think that this the pandemic has is there an age group that has adapted to this better than than another? Is, is this, you know, the, the, the young people? Has this been better for the young people? Uh, the old people are all used to being alone anyway. So they're they're, they're, they're well, yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, well, what I you found is yeah. that uh, what I found is that uh, over the past couple of years, uh, we've obviously moved from "Hey, I'm going to pick up the phone and call someone" to "I'm going to text someone." And then during the pandemic, it's become "Well, we're just going to have a Zoom call," mm-hmm. uh, and the Zoom call or Teams call or Blue Jeans or whatever, uh, or it'll be an email. So I've actually found that phone calls are actually decreasing. I'm barely on the phone nowadays because it's back to back Zoom meetings with folks. And if we're not discussing oh. things on Zoom, it becomes email. So I'm seeing the decline of the telephone, as it were, uh, is now given way to 
zeros and ones and, and black and white text on a screen or video chats. Is it safe to say you think that people who have no ability to adapt did not make it well through this uh, through this pandemic and the changes? I'd agree with that. But that's that's not unique to any uh, seismic change. No, that's probably well, true. That's I mean, true. There's you still know? people bitching or, about or industry. Uh, in, in industry. nonlinear yeah. editing. Yeah. Well, even if we go back to recent history, and I and I know this is probably retread, and you've heard this, but the the thing that I've been been glommed onto for for months now has been it's like the the tsunami, right? When when that fi- was the nail in the coffin for tape based media, and people who were holdouts finally moved on to tapeless because they couldn't get beta tapes anywhere, they couldn't get HD cam tapes anywhere. Yeah, and uh, I, I think it's we're in the still we're we're in that phase right now as well, which is those who are still trying to do it the old way that business is going to dry up and you, you got, you got to make that change. Uh, you may not like it. You may not believe in it, but if you want to stay afloat and pay your employees and pay your mortgage, then you got to start changing with the times. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's as much as I hate to say that I agree. (laughs) Oh, and, and, you know, I, I'm not going to call this person out, but, uh, I have a, I have a friend that, you know, was all on me about just because it's new doesn't mean we should adopt it. And people forego new technology, uh, or, or people jump into new technology because they don't understand the reasons we did it the old way. And I guess there's some value to that, but you really need to take a step back and not get mired in the minutia and see that this is a sea change and you need to adapt. Uh, and if you don't, you're going to die. And who said and, that? And who, who said that again? The... Oh, I'll tell you after the call. But I think <laughs> I think everyone on this call knows who it is. He's a good friend, uh, and uh, we just don't need to call We're him just out. Just not going to call him out. Yeah. No. But 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 it's also but it's also truth because those of us who've been like following the curve and being on the front of it, people sought us out for our knowledge to do things, and 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 it became a little bit easier to have those discussions. Um, the other thing I found really interesting is that. Companies who would never call me because I wasn't in California would reach out to me because there were no longer restrictions. So it's like people who would consult, you know, wanted a physical consultant, but you had to be in their location. Hmm. That they that was the way they did it. But after COVID, they now saw that this is a virtual world and they could do that. And I got a lot more interesting phone calls for for you know from VC companies and that kind of stuff on technology advancements from people that I would have never had discussions with before. I think and I found that a, real interesting. Yeah. You bring up a great point, Gary, uh, and that's whenever there's a, a sea change, um, it's not just oh I'll learn a new product. It's a fundamental knowledge level that there there needs to be. There's a they, what they call it a price of education, right? right. And so, uh, like you, it's been a mountain of uh, information and education that need to be conveyed to folks about how to accomplish your job in media and entertainment during the pandemic. And as I said, it's not just another widget. It's not just another oh, a new plugin. It's everything is changing. And the the cost and time of education can sometimes be just a mountain. And a lot of folks either don't have time or maybe they're close to retiring and don't want to learn it. Uh, and I found that a majority of my time. I, well, I don't want to call anyone out there, but I find a majority of my time has been education. And I don't mean to, you know, uh, high school students or college students. It's been media professionals who say, I don't know about cloud. I don't know about remote. I don't know what bandwidth and latency are. And I think that's been the biggest 
thing is is uh, being able to educate folks and folks realizing they need to be educated. Yeah. I think we well, all and, know the it, people that that when there's a big change happening, you know, like uh, they're going to be it's going to be hard to talk to them or it's going to be hard to work with them just because they lack that ability to adapt to to change well, or all at, out there. Look at how. When it happened and all of a sudden you've got all these reporters broadcasting from their phones with no lights and 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 how bad some of them looked when they didn't have the high end city cameras and a guy to shoot it and somebody to hang a microphone on them. And they all of a sudden realized that that the competency competency level of the people they were working with was considerably higher than they ever assumed. Yeah. I mean, look how much bad video we saw from professional news services because they couldn't get crews in places. And even now, when you look at you watch interviews, it's like, you know, it's the person talking to a laptop with a real camera on them recording the thing, but occasionally cutting back to the Zoom shot to be able to show that because that's what they do now. You have somebody you have a producer on the Zoom call talking to the to it and the camera guy shooting the talent the way it is. And, and it's all done remotely. And this is a whole sea change in all of this. But but, you know, in May and June, the quality of most of that was incredibly bad or average at best. Well, you know, I was going to mention that uh, a little while ago, that second point on the production thing is, is, you know, when the pandemic first hit and everything stopped, but then you saw, you know, Saturday Night Live doing their everybody at home and or, or Stephen Colbert doing stuff at home. And it was not good. It was awkward. It was, it was difficult to watch sometimes. And now that we're in the second wave though, you know, productions have, have learned how to adapt and they're, and they're kind of trying to be a little bit more back to normal. And I, I just thought that was an interesting thing to watch as we, um, as we went, as we went, went through this, I'm happy that we don't have to have zoom calls as broadcast network television, because that just, in my well, opinion, that didn't work very well. One of the interesting things was actually Oprah did it, but but Drew Barrymore show did it a couple times where they actually shot the person sitting in a chair on a green screen and then cut it in on her stage. And people didn't realize that was a not, not a live interview. They didn't realize that it was a it was a, a separate interview. The interviewer and the interviewee were in two different places. And that was a whole new set of the technology. The NBA in the bubble did these things with holograms from te- some technology that was used for display purposes where they'd actually use holograms as part of the interview because they photographed really well. And, it, and it's interesting how the broadcasters adapted in real time to start doing things like green screen for that and production and separated stages. I mean, if anybody saw the West Wing piece that was on HBO Max, where they did it as a stage production with separators and things like that, that was really fascinating to watch on how they would put on for all intents and purposes, a play of a television script and allowed the separation to to work in their favor. So people have done it and it has worked out. The other interesting thing, and and, and Michael, I'd like to hear your comment on this, but, you know, we kind of like burned through everything that Netflix had and burned through everything on Hulu. And, you know, Disney Plus has now run out of The Mandalorian and they've got The Stand that showed up on CBS All Access. But we've hit a, a tipping point going eight or nine months without production that, you know, now all of a sudden we need to start pulling content, which is why content from overseas is starting to get really popular and you start seeing things. Um, there's a, a really good show shot in Canada called Transplant um, that's shot in Toronto because they have less COVID restrictions than we do. And and that's been an interesting sidebar to all of this is that our industry has actually moved to a more international space because of um, the varying controls of the pandemic elsewhere in the world. 
I think you bring up a, a, a fantastic point. Uh, I think something that uh, has been done quite a bit by folks uh, at Netflix and YouTube is um, utilizing back catalogs, right? Not only uh, like if we look at things like Cobra Kai, right? That uh, That's capitalizing on Karate Kid, which is something that, you know, I grew up with. And uh, if I had kids, I would want to introduce them to that as well. So there's this immense amount of back catalog that Disney Plus uh, and uh, uh, these, you know, these other VOD platforms are realizing this is still content that uh, uh, may not be evergreen, but it's content people will absorb. It's content people want to watch. And, and having HBO Max and having all these other VOD outlets coming with not only the, the content that Gary's talking about, but also the back catalog. Um, I think there's been enough to satisfy most people. I think the the only area where that really hasn't shown has been theater releases, right? Mm. Uh, if we take Tenant and put that off to the side, um, yeah. th that's been the the, the big area uh, that there obviously hasn't been content because you can't go to, or excuse me, there hasn't been those releases uh, because the content has either been VOD or pushed off to next year. I think that's been the, probably the, the biggest hit and one that I don't know that's going to recover. Let's, I let's... disagree. Well, see, I, that, I'm, I, I, have a, I have an issue with that because, you know, going to a theater is still one of those things that I like to do. It's like going to a play. And I'm not going to take that out of my mix when it becomes available to me again. I'm going to live with watching my high-end 4K Ultra HD with expensive soundbar system that matches, you know, most editing suites, you know, high-end finishing suites. But but I know that, that there's still something to me about being enclosed in a space and out of my own environment and back in a theater that I'm not as worried about the... Uh, the loss of motion picture. There may not be as many theaters as there used to be because some people will be lazy, but there'll be those of us like this that still go and watch film and go watch, you know, those kind of things that I think that, that, that motion picture theaters are not going to go away. I really don't think that. I think the question well, is, will there be enough of us that will still go back to them? Um, and that's, that's what I worry about for a while, I, but, but I, you bring up a good point. Yeah. Let's, there are let's, folks who are there for the, for the entertainment content and folks who are there for the entertainment content and the experience of going to the theater and going to the theater. Is it worth paying 20 bucks a ticket? Is it worth paying 10 bucks for popcorn and having to wear a mask and having to sit three yeah. or four seats from someone? Uh, so there's all these other things at play that uh, parents may say, look, I don't need to pay to take my kids to the theater. We can get a under thousand dollar television Right. That's 60 inches and put them in front of the TV with some Cheerios. And that's going to be infinitely easier and infinitely cheaper. Cheerios. Oh, without question. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, don't deny that. But there'll be those of us that still want to see, you know, the next Star Wars or, you know, I, I would I would pay to go see Wonder Woman in an IMAX theater by myself. Let's transition this a little bit in for the last few minutes into like the future and what we can look for next year. I think I think we kind of have done that talking about, you know, will theaters reopen and things like that. What you know, what else do we have to look forward to next year? Like, what do you guys see? I mean, the vaccine, is it going to save us all? Are we going to get back out to get back? To, will we get back to normal when whatever that normal is in the uh, in the media creation space? Any 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 predictions there? Well, from post, uh, I think uh, I keep saying I think when in my heart I know um, what we're going to see is productions and independent productions, not studios as much, but independent productions saying we don't need to four wall somewhere, we don't need to pay uh, outrageous New York or L.A. Uh, real estate costs. 
when we can downsize our footprint to a small shop and people can work remote. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing that. Unfortunately, that's going to cause budgets to shrink even further. <laughs> but uh, the model has been proven that you don't all have to be in the same building. Mm -hmm. And you're going to continue to see that uh, go uh, continue. I, and I think that's I think that's the case across all industries. I think it's going to be cause a real issue in a lot of cities with. You know, corporations not needing high rises of, of massive amounts of space for people that aren't there or working remotely. I, I think that's going to be one of the major outcomes of all of this is the change in how corporate and industrial real estate is used in in more important environs, you know, in, in city environments and things like that. I, I think that's going to be an interesting thing to, to go into. What about um, remote fatigue, though? At what point? Are we tired of working out of our house and not seeing people, not not that, sitting around the water that cooler? That, no. That's when it becomes, I'm going to work remote three days a week and then two days in the office. Mm. So or that's we the, rotate that's, coming in every other Friday. That transitional yep. element, the hybrid model, as the schools like, like to call it, that we may ease back in into things. I wonder if we ease into the hybrid model, are we going to see that people really liked it better at home? Or will they realize, you know, I really like better coming in every day or will the hybrid model be the best of both best of both worlds i think we don't know the answer to that until we actually do the hybrid model well it's it's your work-life balance and there are some folks who say look i like being able to sleep an extra half hour because i don't have to get up in the morning i like not having to have a nanny or or a babysitter for for my kids uh but you know what i still like going in and seeing my buddy and going out and having lunch with them yeah so there is going to be a balance and i know for me uh, although I've been working from home for the past two years, uh, I miss seeing people on a semi-daily basis. Sure. So the hybrid model, I think, is going to be the silver bullet. Let me throw this at you first, though, uh, because the hybrid model or, or the, the model we're in now is um, has sometimes been that, hey, since you are working at home, it's 1030 at night. I know you can make this quick change because everything is right there in front of you. That has been a downside of this uh, of this of this current um, work at home thing. Who's, that, whose fault? Whose fault is that? And yeah. I don't mean to be an ass. Whose fault is that? If, I, I, you know, it's a good question. I think it's a, it's a lot of people's fault. It's it's the fault of the producers thinking they can't ask that. Sometimes it's the fault of like you know the big client, the the, the end of the food chain client who's ultimately paying the bills. That says, oh, hey, we need this change, and then whoever. They hired saying, hey, the editor's working at home. We can I know he can do it because it's all at home so we can have him do it. I think the, the fault goes across the board. It's hard for the end, the end person, like the person at the bottom of the rung, which is often in the case of Post, the editor to say, no, I have to set some boundaries because there's a fear that shit, if I don't do this, then they're going to get mad and they're not going to call me on the, on, the, on the next one because I didn't I didn't do this. But at the same time, Soapbox. I think the boundaries have to be set up so they're not so editors and, and people at the bottom of the food chain aren't taken advantage of because sensible people will say, you know what, asking someone to make a change at 1030 at night is, is uh, just because they're working at home is um, over the line. Well, without question. And and it's over the line. You know, let's be honest with it. You're working past eight o'clock with anybody and they're asking you to do something unless it's an emergency, they better have a good reason because, mm -hmm. you know, we all have lives and, and, and you, it, it gets back to that same thing. You know, are you going to work on set 16 hours a day and get four hours off and then come back 
do another 20 hours the next day and another day. And after a few days of that, you no longer have the capability to function properly because you're so tired. It's no different at home. And you have an added fatigue of of not being able to get out and get recharged from seeing people or eating or whatever it is that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And you get the additional levels of burnout because of that. And that's an important part of this, too, because people are not thinking about how much we're getting burned out of just being in the same space. We I'm not a hermit. But I pretty much become one in all of this. And it's kind of scary for those aspects. I worry about the people who are going to be afraid to leave their houses after this. That's one of the things I'm concerned about is the people who've gotten accustomed to being introverted and now can't go out in public, can't go out in an environment because yeah. of fear, because of a new learned response to all of this. That's And there's a bunch of people in our industry that are like that. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue into, I think, what could be one of our our last most important topics uh, that, that's big for us is uh, like conferences and NAB next year, because it has been moved, you know, officially was moved until, uh, was it September, I think, October? Um, September. Uh, is, is it going to happen? Will people go? I mean, if, we, if, if, if it happens, will people go? Yes. Now, that being said, uh, in-person conferences, attendance has been decreasing for years across the yes. board. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, love my friends at NAB. Uh, they can spin it all they want, but there's a decrease every year. And any of us who go there see what the foot traffic looks like right. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday. It's a madhouse. You know it. But the days after it becomes a ghost town, uh, you know, Wednesday and, and after. So, uh they're not going to go away forever. I think we're going to start seeing consolidation uh, in New York, for example, when they do NAB East. I think they also do it with AES in the same building. So mm-hmm. we're going to start to see consolidation of these conferences, uh, obviously in different countries. That's a little bit uh, more difficult, but we're going to see a consolidation and uh, it most likely will mean moving to smaller venues uh, there. Go ahead. That actually brings up a really interesting point. Do you see smaller events? or more localized events that are more geared to smaller environments, local environments where the rules can allow people to get together or not get together, have the case maybe. I, I think we're gonna go back to the time where we start seeing smaller events based on location that people can go to without having to travel so far. You know, an yeah, event in like, Chicago- like the road show model. Them. Right. And, and and those might become more commonplace like because that. it's smaller groups of people in localized environments. So you're not getting somebody coming in from Asia to teach you in you know Iowa, um, teach somebody from Iowa. And those kind of things that, that I think a lot of people are concerned about with the larger shows. And I wonder how much that's going to be a future for all of this as we as the industry changes. And we're all trying to figure out that out as we go. I mean, every one of us is working on something that's related to that. What so. you, I think about the Monday of NAB when you walk into the uh, walk into the, the South Hall or the North Hall on that first Monday morning, the doors open and what it looks like and what you feel like and, and just your surroundings as you push your way through those first couple of hours. And I just can't fathom anybody who would who will not do that and not in the back of their mind think oh my gosh you know what communicable disease is being spread through the air as i as i walk through here that's why i just look at it and think i just don't see how it'll ever be the same 
It's a well, and here's here's the other angle is that it's the tail wagging the dog. You think it's people paying for tickets that drive the show? No, it's the manufacturers. Oh, so yeah. when the yeah. manufacturers say, "Hell no, we're not doing that. We're not endangering our employees," and we also had down revenue last year, so we don't have enough money to pump into uh, the the booth and paying for everyone's travel and everything. We're just going to pull out. And when that money pulls out. There's not enough money to keep the show going. So are you saying we're never going to get to ride in the Tesla tunnel that's underneath the uh, Las Vegas Convention Center? There's a Tesla tunnel underneath the Las Vegas Convention Center? Yeah, the Boring think, Company. I, you haven't seen this? I of course I know, Scott. Come on. It's, it's supposed to be ready for the first major trade show of 2021. Hey, that is hey, a giant was, sphere that they're building. Like when you see, you see the, saw the big hole when you rode the monorail last time we were there. Like that, I'm, this is just tough to look forward to. That's not even NAB. I've been in the massive data farm that's under Las Vegas near the airport. I mean, do, do you realize that there's like this huge, massive data farm out there? No. Because it's where I, it's where all the dark fiber intersects. How do we because get to tour that? Oh, I, I, I no comment. Military project. <laughs> it's not really uh, there. You know, government, government work. But no, there's a huge underground server farm. I mean, it's like six, three or five million square feet um, underground. And it's because the temperature in Vegas at night averages 72 degrees year round, and they use it to cold vent the, the server systems at an optimum temperature. So there's this massive server farm there. That's cool. And it's there because of the fiber lines travel under underneath the rail lines in which they were coming west, you know, driving the railroads west. Um, uh, Vegas was a major point right near there where the rails intersected, you know, you know, the, you know, the promontory point and all that in Utah. Uh, you don't think about those kinds of things, but all of the dark fiber in the country, all of the heaviest fiber lines run under rail lines because they, uh, you know, telecom companies bought that right you know, 200 years ago, 150 years ago. If only so, they could route one to my house, then, then that would be a life. I, a life I have Comcast in downtown Chicago and it's not any better here, Scott. So. Yeah, well. <laughs> any other, any other things for next year to, um, to look forward to any predictions, any anything. What how, what positive spin can we put on this? The, va the vaccine will get us all back out to normal. I don't know what, but how to end on a bright note. We got to end well, on something out positive. We're coming out of it, and and, and the thing are that we know are we? I mean, look at well, the numbers. It's going right to take now. a few more months. It's not going to it's not going to happen right away. I mean, we're talking about six or seven or eight months now. After the Christmas, after the Christmas surge happens yeah, and, and starts to pass. Well, and even now they're saying that that even vaccine. You know, distribution in the United States alone is not going to hit, you know, 50 uh, percent of the country until August. So, you, you know, until we get 50 percent of the country vaccinated, it's still going to be an issue and we're still going to be restricted. But we'll have the capability to move forward. And I think that's the real interesting part here is that we can't get bogged down in. God, we're so tired of this and it's so depressing and we need to do that. We need to see the light at the end of the tunnel and work towards that and rebuild our relationships and rebuild the kind of work that we want to do to make ourselves better. It's important for us as an industry to stay united, but also to stay, stay positive for the future. I like that. I'm hopeful, uh, and this this goes across every industry, is that uh, the mental well-being of uh, a majority of the United States um, – is going to be better next year. And what I mean by that is oh, uh, with any man. luck, COVID will be settling down and, and uh, you know, we'll be getting vaccine vaccinations. I think uh, politics being on the front page every day and on the second page and on the third page, uh, my hope is that- uh, And on the gossip page. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my hope is that um, that will be reduced uh, I'm Good not point. saying we're going to be in a utopia, but uh, I'm hopeful that things may uh, revert to a less 
uh, publicly traumatic time. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hopeful that uh, we will be able to reconnect with loved ones we haven't seen. We'll be able to uh, uh, connect with friends we haven't seen. Our mental well-being will just be better, and that will enable us to conquer um, all the changes that are happening downwind of uh, you know the ramifications uh, of the pandemic. Well, I think those those are two good uh, good things to end on, gentlemen. I thank you for for chatting. Thanks for all the chats we had during 2020 during this crazy year and. And, um, you know, stay safe, stay well, enjoy the holidays, and let's wish everyone a safe and prosperous 2021. Thanks, Wear a, wear a mask. We'll see you next year. Good advice. Bye, guys.